Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. I have got something a little bit different for you today. Not only am I actually delivering on a promise that I sent to my like newsletter, email list subscribers, but I am not doing a book review or an interview either. I'm going to be summarising and going through all of the details from my Reframing Happiness webinar with a little bit extra added in from further things that I've learned. Now, if you didn't know and you weren't following on Instagram or subscribed to the mailing list, I did do a Reframing Happiness webinar not too long ago where the idea was to change people's minds on happiness because we are obsessed with it. I'm obsessed with it. I've read so many books on happiness and I've read so many bloody non-fiction books. And I think I've kind of come to quite a rational conclusion on how we can look at happiness. And I thought I'd quite like to put that out there. Now, when I first thought about this, obviously I was thinking, right, how can I also make money from my learnings I feel a little bit bad about that I'm not a very good businessman I'm not particularly money motivated so me doing that was kind of out of character what I'm going to do today is just say if you enjoy this and you kind of want to contribute to the creating of the podcast or contribute to my life or you know if you would buy me a coffee if you saw me out just head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash a need to read and you can essentially just give me some money you know, you don't have to though, this is for free, so let's get going. So if you have been following me for a while or listening to the podcast for a while, you'll have noticed that from someone who works on the internet, over time I've come to dislike it, which seems weird and quite hypocritical because of course most of you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if it wasn't for social media. But I've learned quite a lot over the last couple of years and I've read hundreds of books and you cannot help but have your mind changed when you read a lot of books. And of course, I don't think the educational system prepares us for the actual important questions on life in terms of how to live a fulfilled life, how to be tranquil, how to manage your emotions and things like that. So after all my reading, I've come to a conclusion on happiness I don't really think it's that important or it definitely shouldn't be something that we should aim at. This is echoed through quite a few books on happiness, but where it stops being echoed is on social media. People are still hellbent on being happy and loving themselves and being really positive. And I honestly think it's quite stupid. I think the internet is full of irresponsible and selfish people. And I'm getting quite fed up with the narrative like I've had conversations with people where they've put videos up for example saying some really ignorant things about what you believe you deserve you get and a quote from Jean-Paul Sartre that I would have mentioned in the existentialist podcast is that if something is not true for the least favored then it can't be true at all so what we have to focus on as human beings and ethical human beings is focusing on the things that seem to be the like true for everyone it's very difficult to do that, but what people like to do is just ignore the fact that it's difficult and ignore the fact that there are people out there who are really, really underprivileged and living on $2 a day, have no access to the internet, no access to this type of information. So things that you see on the internet, affirmations, crystals, manifesting, it's just not going to work for them. And let's face it, if it isn't true for the least favoured, how can it actually be true? It's something that confuses me and frustrates me on a regular basis. 
So I'm just going to talk about the things that are based in fact, right? And when it comes to happiness, a lot of people are having their happiness ruined by the internet. And it's not just going on the internet and comparing your life to other people. It's about the people you admire on the internet. It's about the illusions that we fall for. It's, um, for example, in the webinar, I had a picture, so just imagine this, of like Elon Musk, Francis Ngannou, Molly May, me, Oprah, uh, Joe Rogan. All of these people are put on a pedestal. I know I'm not. But there are people put on a pedestal like Francis Ngannou. What a fucking brilliant guy. He went from working in diamond mines or in a natural resource mine somewhere in Africa then tried to cross the um, channel between North Africa and Spain like three times before he actually successfully made it and then went to Paris, started MMA, and now he's heavyweight champion of the world in the UFC. We have to be careful admiring that story because none of us listening to this podcast right now are ever going to want something as bad as he wants it because what is behind us is nowhere near as terrifying as what was behind him. Someone like Elon Musk, he's done cool things he's he's an eccentric guy but he's had to forgo a lot of relationships he he doesn't have many friends and, and he'll openly admit that his social skills you can see are not that great molly may just complete fucking epitome of ignorance like paying no attention to the luck uh that has got her where she is it's it's ridiculous me i'm so lucky to have generated the numbers on this podcast like imagine if i had like a lot of people hadn't said yes to coming on the podcast or the fact that i can read the fact that i have access to money to buy the books it, it's it does come down to luck so we have to be very careful who we admire the most important kind of zone that you can focus on is yourself right and acknowledge the luck that has played a part in your life and stop just putting people on the internet on a pedestal. Because, let's face it, for the most part, myself included, they're all fucking idiots. I think most people really are, are idiots. And I heard Alan de Botton say, life is short, we're all idiots. Right? What a great quote. We are. None of us are perfect. So what we need to stop doing is assuming that other people outside us are any better than us. They'll all make the same kind of mistakes. And that's something we have to get used to. So let's go to happiness, right? There are a few things, of course, you can do to increase your levels of happiness. I'm talking about eating right, exercising, and sleep. It's not my zone. I don't really pay too much attention to those. I eat like shit. I sleep like shit. It's not ideal. But there are things that you can learn about that will make you understand happiness in a little bit more depth. So one of these things is effective forecasting. Now, we as humans systematically overestimate how good and bad experiences will impact us. Things like wealth, health, age and marital status, they tend not to matter as much as we think. But we make a lot of life decisions with this stuff in mind. Which is a shame. And what's an even further shame is it's actually quite well known in psychological research now... Um, and probably underreported, actually, and you can see that on social media, the fact that it's not really there, is that we're not really well-placed to accurately like recall the past. We 
confabulate in our mind and we make up memories and we fill in the gaps where necessary and to perceive the present we're all led by our different biases and to anticipate the future we are not well placed to do any of those things so with that in mind knowing how little you know i'm going to ask you a question and i just want you to think about this for a moment would you rather win the lottery or lose the use of your legs in a car accident I imagine most people are like, yeah, well, I'd obviously rather win the lottery, you idiot, Ed. And yeah, fair enough. I'm sure getting a load of money would be ideal. But there are two studies, one in 1978 and one in 2008, that support the idea that it doesn't really matter. Because you're going to return to the level of happiness or satisfaction that you had before this life-changing event within roughly about three months and this is what they call hedonic adaption when it comes to life events that that change the course of our life we're going to have two types of happiness that we have available you have natural which is when you get what you want and then you have synthetic and that's what we make when we don't get what we want and if you've read say the subtle art of not giving a fuck he mentions about the guy in the beatles pete best who was the original drummer before ringo Starr. pete best claims that he's happier now than he ever would have been with the beatles and that is a perfect example of synthetic happiness use an example from my life when i was younger i wanted to be in the marines and i went through quite a lot of training for that i was down in limston for like 18 months just kept getting injured now, looking back, I'm so grateful that I'm not in the re Marines. That is a fine example of synthetic happiness. Now, if I'd actually managed to pass out, I probably would have been equally as happy that I'd passed out. And that would have been natural happiness because I got what I wanted. So when things happen in your life, it's good to remember that you, you can synthetically make this happiness. You, your mind is a sense-making machine and given a task over time you will make sense of the situation and you will return to your base level of happiness now that is an awful lot of talk about happiness for someone who's now claiming that happiness doesn't actually seem to be that important so we have to ask ourselves the question do we actually want to be happy all the time now, there was a fiction writer in the 70s called Robert Nozick, and he came up with this thought experiment called the experience machine. If you've listened to the episode on the sweet spot, you'd have heard me talking about this before. In the experience machine, imagine your mind to run for a moment that you wake up in the morning, but oh my God, you're not in your room. You've just woken up in a white room, kind of looks like a hospital, and there's a weird guy there in a lab coat. And he says, hey there, I'm just uh, doing my every, every now and then we do a little check on you just to see how healthy you are and... and see what's going on you've actually been in the simulation we've put nodes on the part of your brain that can simulate essentially a happy life for you totally happy living in a utopia we just want to check that you're happy to be plugged back in um, and go back into your life you won't remember this event go back into your life without suffering and, and everyone around you is so happy but none of it's actually real or uh, we can actually unplug you from the machine and you get to experience real life. This is another one of those scenarios where you're like, yeah, no, I definitely like the happy one. Don't be an idiot, Ed. Of course, I, I, I want to be happy. 
but would you really would you not want that like that little bit of suffering you know when people annoy you at work like it actually makes your life interesting adds a variety of experience being happy all the time tends to actually make people uncomfortable so they then go and seek out suffering so robert nozick's experience machine is a good way to kind of show you that you don't really want to be happy all the time and even if right now you're feeling resistance to me saying that I implore you to think about it a little bit more and a little bit more depth and thinking about all of the sort of major life events that you've had that have been important to you that haven't included being happy. Because I think we don't want to be happy all the time. People agree with me or Essentially, I agree with other people because I haven't come to this conclusion myself. Daniel Kahneman, who's one of the most famous psychologists ever, he left the field of happiness because people actually prefer satisfaction. They prefer a life with a little bit of hardship that has problems that need solving that makes them feel satisfied. I'm going to come back to him in a moment. But what we can look at now is our minds. Our minds are fucking bizarre, right? We go about thinking we have freedom of choice and free will. And unfortunately, and I know this is quite a deterministic view, but they can actually tell that you're about to move 300 milliseconds before you're actually about to move. Neuroscientists can see that now. So before you even have the idea to get up and move or you have the idea to scratch yourself, your brain's already sent a signal. So you're not consciously aware of this stuff. So that leaves the question... Do we have much control over our mind at all? There's a few ways we can look at this. One from Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist from America. His book, The Righteous Mind, Happiness Hypothesis. He gives us this term of the elephant and the rider. So elephant is our subconscious mind. And the rider, it's us. We are the rider. And that is the conscious mind. Now you can have control up to a certain point, right? If you want to go left and you're riding an elephant, but the elephant wants to go right, you, you're probably going to end up going right, aren't you? And it's good to be aware of that because at times it can feel like we have total control and that absolutely everything is our fault. And when emotions come and really take control of us, we're left feeling a little bit sad because we think that something is inherently wrong with us. When actually, the fact of the matter is you don't really have free will. And maybe I'll speak about that at another point and maybe right now there's some resistance coming up to say no 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 we definitely do have free will a good way to show that you kind of don't have too much control over your mind and we can park free will for a moment and we'll just talk about the control of your actual mind and, and your thoughts try not to think of a white bear it's near impossible to not think about something to try and not think about something is proven psychologically it's called the ironic process theory it actually brings you back to thoughts of what you least intended so try not to think about a white bear which do that now just try not to think of a white bear it doesn't seem to work now that just shows that our mind is less under our control than we think right so how can we relate that to happiness what gets in the way of a lot of people's happiness is negative thoughts and kind of when we ruminate over things and when we can't seem to clear our mind of the stuff that's bothering us. 
in The Happiness Trap, Russ Harris refers to this as radio doom and gloom. So radio doom and gloom are those thoughts that go off in your mind of, God, I'm a fucking idiot. What did I do for breakfast? Why didn't I do this? Why do I do this in my life? Why am I such a piece of shit? All of these annoying thoughts that can really get in the way of your day. He likes to think of them as background noise. And they truly can be. Because you don't have to attach to it once it's up there. And the example he uses is of when you're driving along and you're whistling, listening to the radio. You're not always totally engaged in what you're listening to. And probably the same as you listen to this podcast now. Some of you will have got 16 minutes in and maybe I'm boring you. My voice is a little bit too monotone today. It's just off there in the background. And that can be the same with your thoughts. You can just get on with your day with these thoughts going around your head. And I get it. I know it's frustrating and it's draining, but it is possible. And that's the idea of radio doom and gloom. Now, there was a quote in Oliver Berkman's book, 4,000 Weeks, that kind of highlights the illusion of control that we're under when it comes to our lives, right? Because we have this like social perfectionist idea that we should have control of our health, finances, relationships, all of these things in our lives that we should have total control over, right? What Oliver Berkman says is that we go through our days fretting because we can't control what the future holds. And yet most of us would probably concede that we've got to where we are in our lives without exerting much control over it at all. Reading that actually sent me into a little bit of an existential crisis because I was constantly reaching and trying to grab at life to control it under the illusion that I could ever actually get to that point. But I feel quite liberated now by the fact that I understand I've never really had too much control and that's okay. Maybe I never will. It's most likely that I never will. And there's a nice story that comes from Greek myth. It's not really a Greek myth. It actually comes from a play from Sophocles and it's about Oedipus. Now, Oedipus was born to a pretty terrible prophecy. He was to shag his mum, well, marry her, and kill his father. When his mother found this out when he was younger, she handed him off to a shepherd and said, right, take him into the woods. I want that boy gone, dead. But the shepherd was quite a good guy, and he felt sorry for little old Oedipus, who was going to be left in the wood to die. So he handed him over to someone in the next village. Oedipus grew up under the king and queen in a following in the neighbouring town. When he grew up, he heard about the prophecy about him. And he was terrified. He didn't want to kill his dad and he didn't want to marry his mum. So he fled the town and went to a neighbouring town. But you can see where this is going. On the way to the neighbouring town, he got in an argument with a guy and ended up killing him. Because that's what people did when they are in ancient Greece. It was a rational thing to do. Oh, you want to have an argument? Mm, well, I'm just going to kill you. How's that? That's what happened. He then went into the city, which was under the spell of a sphinx at the time, because, you know, that's what happens. Big giant fucking cats with human heads take control of things. So Oedipus answered a riddle, which then got him rights to sitting on the throne. And he sat upon the throne, and then he went to bed, and he sealed the prophecy with his mother. Now, Freud has kind of popularised this story and says that there is the Oedipus complex, which means that the relationship we have with the parent with the opposite of the opposite sex means that we want to have sex with them and the parent of the same sex we see them as competition 
I think there are a lot of things Freud said that were reasonable, and I think there are a lot of things that he said that were unreasonable. This just happens to be one of the unreasonable things. I see that story as that there are certain things in our lives that are completely unavoidable, and our running away from them is only going to make them worse, and we'll actually probably be running straight towards that which we're trying to avoid. Maybe you agree. Maybe you don't. But this is all part of the illusion of control. And it's another thing that I find quite liberating about this whole illusion of control. Because it really can be liberating. Because when you understand how little control you have, it kind of puts you more in the driver's seat, in a sense, to be like, oh, actually, I can just do some things that are meaningful to me then, if if that really is the case. And life will be a bit easier. And truly, it will. Once you get rid of this idea of perfectionism and having control over everything, your life does seem to be a little bit lighter. There was a part in the webinar where I spoke about the importance of self-esteem or the lie of the importance of self-esteem. I've spoken about this in the episode uh, called How the West Became Self-Obsessed, my review of Will Storr's book, Selfie. But people are so obsessed with it. People are so obsessed with what they think about themselves. And there is one man that we can thank and we can hate for this. And his name is John Vasconcellos. And he was the founder of the self-esteem movement in the 80s. He was one of the most powerful politicians in California at the time. And he'd had a pretty turbulent upbringing. He had some serious bouts of depression. At some point, he was taken under the wing of Carl Rogers, who is the psychologist who kind of founded Unconditional Positive Regard. He's very, very famous. Now, there was also this like human potential movement that came about in the 70s, which was getting people to self-actualize. And this was mostly based in the States, right? Because let's face it, the further west you go, the more self-obsessed people get and the more focused they are on becoming the best selves. This self-actualization, increased self-efficacy. And unfortunately... When John Vasconcellos tried to increase the self-esteem of children in America, tried to increase the self-esteem of um, adults in America, he was basing it off the idea that fixing self-esteem would be some kind of social vaccine. It would reduce the amount of people that do drugs. It would reduce the amount of people involved in crime. It would make people perform better in school. The study that he commissioned from University of California, Berkeley, actually showed no evidence of the relationship between self-esteem and any of the things that he'd mentioned. And even if there was a slight link, they couldn't determine whether the correlation was actually causation or if it was the fact that, say, let's take performance in schools, people with higher self-esteem actually did better, or was it because they did better they then had size higher self-esteem? It's a confusing conundrum and you, you can't really get to the bottom of it. So knowing that, John Vasconcellos did a cover-up and he asked them to take some stuff out of the report. And people who worked on his task force have actually come out and spoken to Will Storr and said, yeah, no, we absolutely covered it up. So the reason I mention this and self-esteem is because it gets in the way of people's happiness at times. Quite often, really, what we think about ourselves, we hold in such high regard. I don't necessarily think it was that important. I think you can get on just fine with low self-esteem and it comes back to the radio doom and gloom thing. Sometimes you're not going to think you're a great person. And you know what? Sometimes you shouldn't think you're a great person. Sometimes we all do things that make us feel negatively about ourselves. But that is also a great indicator of how we can behave better in the future. 
that's on a case-by-case basis. Some people are genetically disposed to have lower self-esteem. That is a shame. I think I'm in that bracket. I think genetically I'm not blessed in that sense. But importantly, in life, you get what you're given. And I've learned to manage to get on just well with my life without having to think too highly of myself. And it seems to be working all right, you know. I don't really mind what thoughts come up. I don't really let it get in the way of me making decisions about things. Because what's the point? Now, there are going to be people with terribly low self-esteem. And trying to raise that will be a good idea. But the standard routes that people try and suggest to you on the internet are not the best routes. Affirmations, stuff like that. It doesn't seem to work. There was a study done in 2009 that pointed towards the fact that low self people with low self-esteem shouldn't be doing affirmations because it's actually going to make things worse for them. Now, I dread to think there are how many people are out there being sold a lie on the internet about affirmations, talking to themselves in the mirror every morning and hating themselves more and more each day. It actually makes me a bit sick and I really have a feeling that there is a lot of people out there dealing with that kind of self-torture essentially because someone else has told them that it will make them feel better and that someone else will have been someone else who hasn't done the correct research i don't think that's fair this is what i was talking about um idiots on the internet being irresponsible and not actually doing their due diligence on the methods that they're trying to raise people's self-esteem with now, it might seem a bit mean for me to call them idiots, but let's face it, if, if if you actually look at the bottom line of it, is they have some form of responsibility to their audience to give them the correct information, not just information that's going to make them a quick buck, right? I think most people would be able to agree that that is a responsibility that they hold. So how can we actually raise our self-esteem? There's a thing about accepting compliments. I'm terrible at it. I don't practice this, but I know that it um, is is a thing, right? If you learn to accept compliments, your self-esteem will naturally rise. If you nurture your relationships, your social relationships are a strong indicator of your self-esteem. Now, I'm introverted, right? I have a few really good relationships. I don't have a broad spectrum of friends that's like a a broad and thin. It doesn't work for me. Some people that works for great. They love having lots of different connections. I kind of keep it small. That might be at my own detriment, but then genetically introverted, there's not too much I can do to change that, right? Every time I try to, I end up feeling worse. So what are you going to do? But you could well be different to me. So nurturing your social relationships. And this means that the friends that you do have, you don't necessarily have to go out and get more friends, but be a bit more vulnerable and a bit more open with your friends. And that might lead you to getting compliments. That might just lead you to having a deeper connection with that person, which then might make you actually feel better about yourself. That's if you're that bothered about feeling better about yourself, because you don't necessarily have to be. Now, in the webinar, I spoke about philosophy and I also spoke about good ways to lie to yourself now that I'm looking at my computer. And one of them is toxic positivity. The other one was affirmations. And then it was gratitude lists. Now, there are people out there who are writing a list of 10 things that they're grateful in the morning and they're struggling to get 10 things. So they're feeling bad. So if you are absolutely set on writing a gratitude list, keep it short and keep it sweet. Make it easy for you to find things that you're grateful for. If you make it hard, it's going to end up making you feel worse. Now, 
on that as well, please listen to The Science of Gratitude by Andrew Kuberman. It's a great podcast and it covers everything you need to know about gratitude and how you can have genuine physiological impact on your body through gratitude but it's not through the standard methods of say writing something down he talks about how your mind attached to story and he does a far better explanation than i do so i really recommend listening to that now toxic positivity that is the fact that we dismiss negative emotions and respond to distress with like false reassurances right we're not very self-compassionate we're just like yeah no no this is great this is a test a test from the universe uh, let me tell you something, the universe is very big and very expansive and I'm sure it hasn't got time to be sending each one of us individual tests in the form of, say, friends dying or in the form of cancer. So what we need to do is just knock toxic positivity on the head and come to terms with the fact that there are some things in life that we are not meant to understand. It is random and it is brutal and most of us seem to be pretty lucky in the lot that we get, right? Because toxic positivity... I know it's often well-intentioned, but it does cause some form of like alienation and can actually lead us feeling disconnected uh, and also might make people not want to hang around with you anymore, which would be a shame because obviously we know how good social relationships are for your self-esteem. But let's just talk about the philosophy. This is when I was more kind of like hellbent on stoicism. I'm expanding from that, but there are a few good things that we can focus on in stoicism about a life that is not focused on happiness. Seneca says that no one confines their unhappiness to the present, and I think that just goes to show the importance of us actually trying to stay present, focusing on what is in front of us at the time, not what is going to be happening to us in the future. Stoicism has a strong emphasis on saving yourself. I am slowly moving towards the fact that we can't just do everything on our own. I think it's quite a neoliberal idea. Yeah, Margaret Thatcher would be very happy with that. But it is true to a certain extent. And this comes to like educating yourself. I think educating yourself is probably one of the most important things you can do around any topic that you're struggling with at the time. And that means going to proper sources. So me, I, I don't think I'm enough. I, I want to encourage you to read books. And I'll give you a list of books at the end that you can read. But you do have to, at some point, say, well, I suppose I'll learn about this then. I won't just go about um, all ignorant. But on the flip side of this, like there are some social structures in place that do work against us. I'm pretty sure I watched a documentary the other day and they were saying that capitalism and pre-capitalism, those, those eras before the Industrial Revolution happened, suicide has risen 20 times what it used to be. That's quite significant. And that is actually the system we live in. We all live in this capitalist society. And there's a lot of onus on the individual and that can make people feel very bad. And this is this perfectionist ideal that we have to drop. So there are certain things that are working against you. Uh, and it's good to acknowledge those and to know that sometimes like, you feel bad because maybe there's no other option, really, unfortunately. Another thing that I love from Stoicism is about focusing on failure right we hate to think about failure because it would make us a bad person we think that failure means something fundamental about us is wrong and there's nothing that we can really do to change that and that we must internalize that failure that's not okay so premeditatio malorum is the stoic exercise of focusing on potential failures this also actually helps you avoid those potential failures in the future but we have to come to terms with the fact that at certain points in our life, we will fail. And it's all well and good remembering that 
until it comes to the point that you're actually failing. Because we get to that point and we're like, oh God, no, this wasn't meant for me. I wasn't meant to be failing. So actually, yeah, at some point you were going to, and it's good to accept that. And all we can do then is try and move on. But if you want to avoid failure, think about the ways in which you're going to fail and think about the ways in which you can prevent that happening. But of course, when failure eventually does come, don't be too upset about it because all you can do is learn from it. There are a few other things in stoicism I like, and I think understanding that you're going to die at some point, memento mori, can invigorate your life life and, and create like a a good way to prioritize things, right? Because you have to understand that you're going to die. People die of all ages. No one's immune. We are all condemned to death from the moment that we take our first breath. We're just dying at different rates. One more thing on stoicism, and then we'll move to Buddhism, is the concept of a more fatty. Now, I have this tattooed on the back of my arm. Uh, it's not very useful on the back of my arm because if I ever want to remind myself of this concept, I have to pull my back of my arm fat round so I can look at it and it's all smudged and shit. But it's a good one. It's about the love of fate. How would your life change if you were like genuinely grateful for the suffering in it? And the happiness and, and the times of ecstasy and, and the times of discontent. What if all of that you knew was absolutely part of the human condition and that the fact that you even get a human condition is amazing? That's great. A more fatty is brilliant. It can unfortunately sometimes spread into toxic positivity. But for the most part, learning to apply these different methods in your life in... Uh, in moderation is a good idea and a more fatty is one that I try and live by so even when things are sad I'm like well I suppose when I look at it objectively this is all part and parcel of a good life Frederick Nietzsche a philosopher was pretty pretty hot on this idea he he liked the idea of a more fatty and and he was one of the like fathers of existentialism and, and nihilism and really quite an interesting individual but he says that we should live life essentially as if that at the end of it we should be ready to go again in the exact same way and i think some of his last words apart from mother i am stupid which that is legit some of his last words to his mum um was that he should be ready to go again. So at the end of the life, you just say, yeah, again, I'm going again. It does kind of make you feel a little bit more grateful about things, to know that at some point, maybe you'd have to do this all again. Because history does repeat itself, right? Your life, you seem the same problems kind of coming up time and time again. And if you were to change your mind and to be a little bit more grateful for those problems, things might look a bit better. But just be careful not to do it too much because then it borders on, on toxic positivity, which I don't think is obviously a good thing. Now, Buddhism, the whole like the whole premise of Buddhism is suffering. One of the first teaching is dukkha, and that's the Pali word for suffering. And he says that in Buddhism, they're, they're not aiming to be happy. They're aiming for equanimity or peace of mind. And it's achieved essentially by getting yourself out of the cycle of craving that produces dukkha. The cycle of craving, right? We live in a society that is constantly manipulating what we want. 
we don't really have the ability to choose what we want anymore. And it's unfortunate because we're constantly bombarded by different bits of information, different desires that are coming up from all over the world and, and new adverts that make us think we absolutely have to have this new cool piece of tech or this new cool piece of clothing. This cycle of craving, let's say you're single and, and you want to be in love. You craving love is making you sad. That's no, it's not bueno, you know, and I guess... A lot of the time our suffering comes from our inability to acknowledge the impermanence of all of these things. Is that you want something, you get it, you become dissatisfied. You want something else, you get it, you become dissatisfied. It's a constant cycle of just never having enough. So a really good thing to do, just generally for your happiness levels and that equanimity, that kind of peace of mind, that tranquility, is to at some point look at your lot and just like, yeah, it's enough. You feel a lot better for it. It's hard to get there, but it's a nice thing to be able to focus on. Now, if you can't be happy all the time, right? We know this. What what can you actually be? I'm trying to aim at personally at the moment, being tranquil in the pursuit of meaningful products. So things that mean something to me. And maybe that's a writing project or maybe that's a something physical maybe that's something like in my interpersonal relationships that i'm working on being not unshakable but kind of psychologically flexible along that route seems to be the best way of doing things for me i could be wrong but what i would suggest you do is take on some personal projects of various different meanings you don't have to jack everything in and take a job that's morally rewarding and financially not so, but figure out some things that you want to do, some things that are going to mean something to you, and just crack on with it, right? We're not actually designed to be dependent on happiness. It's a societal lie, essentially. It's one of the biggest cons of our generation that we can be happy all the time. But you can get a lot of satisfaction from meaningful projects that even sometimes in the moment you're fucking miserable with. Take learning a new instrument or getting better at a skill there are going to be times when you're so fucking frustrated with your inability to do that skill that it will get you down but that doesn't mean that it's not leading towards something good that level of satisfaction sure you're meant to enjoy the journey but there are going to be some times we have to acknowledge that you're not going to enjoy it and paradoxically we have to love that as well because life is weird and it is obscure and we quite fortunately get to live it we get to exist and taking on meaningful projects i would say is a pretty good way of existing so what we're going to do when you get sad because eventually you're going to get fucking sad right we're all going to get to that point something's going to happen it's going to rock the boat and you're gonna feel sad please do not get caught up in just trying to escape it and and getting into bad habits of escapism we do have to kind of buckle up and, and, and get in there and face what it is that is bothering us. And please don't get caught up on whether or not it's fair, because life isn't fair. I think we should all understand it. If life was fair, our lives would all be considerably worse because there are people out there who have got it a million times worse than us. And, and we in the West and, and being able to listen to podcasts puts us in like the top percentile of the world i'd say maybe top 10 percent, but i'm pulling that figure out of my ass essentially now 
when I say do not panic, I mean truly not not being sad, not being toxically positive, but not meaning that this emotion means something fundamental about you and that something's fundamentally wrong and that's going to change the way that people think about you. Nah, don't panic. Sadness is here. It's natural. Suffering, it's natural. It's all part of this concoction of emotions that life is, right? Now, C.S. Lewis, very famous writer, says that pain insists on being attended to. I think a lot of the time we struggle with our own behavior and we frustrate ourselves with that. We should look at self-compassion if you're one of those people who's really struggling with themselves. But we can write down why we're feeling sad and we can work it out. That's what it means by attending to something. It's investigating. It's just another problem to fix, right? Because the problem of sadness, the problem of happiness, these are all problems. And humans, we're problem solvers. We like to solve problems. We like to feel like we're doing something. So don't panic. Get to work. Write some stuff down. Jordan Peterson in his book says, if old memories still upset you, write them down carefully and completely. Like, I get it. Say what you like about him and his, like, cultural views, but his clinical experience and time as a lecturer at literal Harvard means that he knows what he's talking about when it comes to your well-being it's, it's important write stuff down i think journaling and and getting to the bottom of what you're feeling is really really important but of course the only way you can do that is not panic i think naturally when you feel like shit you kind of resist doing the things that are going to make you feel good and sitting down and writing exactly why you feel sad is not going to be the most attractive thing um on your mind for that moment but it is quite an important thing to do. Now, there are plenty of other ways in which you can like manage your mind generally through the day, regardless of how you're feeling, like meditation, journaling, getting off of the fucking internet. I feel very strongly about this at the moment. I don't know if you've noticed, but getting offline is super, super important. It stops this comparison. You say you're learning stuff, but for the most part, you're really not. You, your attention's being sold by corporations and and people like me trying to grab your attention every time I manage to get you to look at a video or a post that I've done on Instagram essentially it's just keeping you on that platform longer making Mark Zuckerberg more money I don't know how I feel about it morally at the moment but time will tell and I feel like I've been saying that for a while but I do think I'm close to making a decision on my social media usage etc etc but really important thing to remember with happiness is if you ask yourself if you're happy, you will cease to be so. And that is a quote by John Stuart Mill, who's a very famous, I think, sociologist or psychologist, but the lines are blurred. That has been about reframing happiness. I think it's time that we looked at it in a different way. I think it would be wise if if we stop focusing on it so much, and it would be wise if we stop listening to people who are like, hey, here's a secret to happiness. Like I went on YouTube earlier and um, Ali Abdal, someone who I used to think was really cool on the internet, had put a video saying, this book will make you happy. It's the book was Courage to be Disliked. I've read that book and I'm not particularly happy all the time. So these people are full of shit on the internet. Like what I'm talking about is, and, and please don't think I'm just being a hater. Like, remember, I work in this environment. I've been on the internet in some capacity now for kind of my job for about two years I feel like I kind of 
see it for what it is now. Um, and I don't think it's actually that much of a great thing. People are lying to people. I don't like that. It, it seems a little bit immoral to me. So just remember, the way, I guess, to be tranquil and kind of to be happy is to stop focusing on it so much and changing the way that you look at it. Because let's face it, the pursuit of happiness is futile. How cheerful is that for an end to a podcast? Stop trying to be happy. And maybe you might achieve it every now and then. It won't be all the time. You'll never be 100% happy. But there will be times in and amongst all this suffering that I'm talking about where you are blissfully happy. You're feeling ecstasy. And just make the most of those moments. Don't go dragging yourself out of happy moments by pulling your fucking phone out or texting someone. Sit with it. Be there in the world. Be in that tiny bit of space that you are taking up at the time. And your life will feel fuller. And I guess that's the important thing, is a, a life that is full. That is it. That is the Reframing Happiness webinar. Of course, it wasn't like that on the day. I was going off on little tangents, different to maybe the ones that I'm doing today. But I don't I don't want to charge people for that. Like, life is pretty expensive at the moment. If you do feel like, obviously, you got enough from this podcast to, God knows why, but want to give me money, um, it'll be helpful, you know? Like, it costs money to fucking live. It costs money to produce a podcast. If, if you think I'm... I'm worthy of a few squids. Head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash a need to read. Um, sponsors as well, just for a bit of transparency. I, I am sponsored by two companies for this podcast, BetterHelp and Athletic Greens. If you want to engage in those sponsors, that obviously gets me money. Uh, I don't really care whether you do or don't. I think Athletic Greens has been really helpful for me. Therapy is is super helpful i don't care where you get your therapy from if you want it online if you want it conveniently and you want it for a little bit less money than standard face-to-face therapy then better help is brilliant for you but if you can get yourself a therapist face-to-face hey more power to you i think that's brilliant too the most important thing is that you do something for yourself should that be what's required um so it really helps engaging and stuff like that. More important than sponsors of the podcast, like I just want you to sign up to my email list, really, because I'm starting to explore a lot of topics and writing about them and in a little bit more depth. And I know it goes against what people think I should do business-wise, but long-form writing gives you, the reader, a chance to process things, a chance to slow down and a chance to kind of make sense of it. It also helps me doing that in the writing process because I get to edit my thoughts, work out if I actually think what I think. So I'm not a great businessman, but I am trying to be a better writer. So I'm not trying to grab money off you, but I do want to change your mind on a few things that I think are unhelpful. I don't know what puts me in a position to think that I'm right on these things, but I guess I do read a lot and I think a lot. I've got a very busy brain. Uh, which is good sometimes and fucking dreadful um, at other times. So that's it. Thank you very much for spending your time with me, you absolute fucking legends. Uh, if you do want to give me money, buymecoffee.com forward slash need to read. If you have any questions following this, uh, my email is in the description of this episode. I'm more than happy to run through anything. Obviously, if it's not too long. If it's too long, I'll just answer it in a podcast because um, maybe maybe 100 people will email me and that'll be a lot of work. Um, I don't know if you know this about me, but... 
I don't really like work too much. I like kind of just learning. I guess that's kind of work. Um, but I don't like emails. That's that's to be sure. But I will answer any questions um, on email or I'll chuck them into a podcast episode. So yeah, sign up to my email. You're fucking legends. Hopefully uh, this made you think a little bit differently about happiness and can hope you have a little bit more of a tranquil life. You fucking legends. Love you, bye.